0: Hey podcast listeners, hope you're doing well and I hope you are winning contracts. Before we get into today's episode, I want to take a minute to share something with you that's working for our clients. Our Federal Access Knowledge Base is helping companies win contracts every single day. I regularly get emails from members thanking us and saying things like, hey, I just won a $2 million contract. Many of you have seen a video that Chris Dambach Shot for us at GovCon. Chris won two contracts totaling $30 million. One of our members, El, emailed me this morning and said, The turning point that opened my eyes was using Federal Access to establish a professional and systematic business development and RFP process. I've now won two contracts worth $480,000. Federal Access is helping a lot of companies win. It can help you too. So here's the deal. I have a special offer for you. Visit federal-access.com forward slash game changers today and get started for just $29. You're going to get access to a digital copy of the government sales manual, over 70 strategy videos, more than 30 webinars, 300 documents and templates, and one of my favorite pieces is SME support. So when you run into any issue, any challenge at all, you can email me directly for help. So go check out the special offer today at federal-access.com forward slash game changers. The link is in the description below the podcast. So go check that out today, federal-access.com forward slash game changers. So you can get started for just $29 today. Now let's hop into this episode. Welcome to Game Changers for Government Contractors. Game Changers is dedicated to helping you position for and win more government contracts. And now your hosts, Josh and Mike. Hey, everybody. Mike Lejeune here with Game Changers for Government Contractors. And we have an old friend guest here. uh, Mr. Robert Jones is on. Robert uh, did uh, an episode a while back, uh, and now we're bringing him back on to talk today about developing your first cost and price proposal. So, Robert, why don't you jump in and tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what you do?
1: Sure. Well, thank you again for the opportunity to come back. Uh, Again, my name is Robert Jones. Uh, My firm is Left Brain Professionals. Uh, We're a boutique accounting firm that works uh, strictly with government contractors, uh, practice primarily accounting system design, implementation, and audit support. Uh, Some of the tasks that we help clients with are things like indirect rates and the cost and price proposals that we're going to chat about today.
0: Yeah, so thanks again for coming back on, Robert. You know, one of the things that I always want to tell people right out of the gate before we get going on an episode like this when we have specialists on here is anytime you are a government contractor, you want to make sure you're working with folks who specialize in government contracting. So, uh, you know, whether it's an accountant, an attorney, whatever it may be, you can't just use the regular folks off the street for this. You know, the guy that does your will is probably not the best guy to negotiate government contracts for you. Might be, probably not. So, I, I Love having specialists like Robert on here, who, as he said right out of the gate, they're a boutique firm specializing in this government contract space. Because you're going to get advice today that is specialized, not generalized. And so I really appreciate that. That we're going to talk about today. So why don't you kick us off and tell us what exactly is a cost and price proposal, and why would a contractor create one of these?
1: Well, a cost and price proposal is really a complex and comprehensive document. Kind of in comparison to a lot of government contractors as they get started particularly as subs uh, might be a originally they might get started with some small dollar value uh, contracts that typically would be fixed price you know firm fixed price approach and while there may certainly be some details in those type of proposals that they put together uh, when they're going after a large dollar value think of things you know greater than two million dollars and things that are going to be uh, negotiated or if it's going to be on a cost type uh, of contract something like a CPFF, uh, CPIF, or CPAF contracts, uh, cost plus fixed fee, cost plus incentive fee, or a cost plus award fee, Right, the nature of those contracts and proposals is cost. So in order for the government to do an evaluation of the proposal, then the contractor has to submit cost data. Again, that's in comparison to uh, a fixed price contract where the contractor submits only price level
0: information. So what are the key elements of a cost price proposal?
1: So the key elements um, are, it's really about the details. Uh, It's about getting into the details of labor, material, travel, ODCs, and subcontractors, depending on how the contractor is proposing the work, uh, as well as the specific details that are required in the RFP. Typically, for example, when we talk about labor, uh, you need to indicate the specific labor categories. Keep in mind that, again, from an RFP perspective, and especially in situations where the government is buying services from you, they may have predefined labor categories. Uh, so you need to make sure that the employees you're proposing actually meet the requirements of the labor categories. You'll provide uh, you know, hours, dollars, that kind of information uh, for each of those labor categories. For you know, when we start talking about materials, you need to be able to provide quotes uh, to support a significant portion of that material, our general guidance, and that you'll find from again other professionals in the field, is we usually say you need quotes to support about 80 percent of the cost uh, of what you're proposing, and that is typically for most situations. You know, 80 percent of the cost can usually be found in about 10 to 20 percent of the actual quantity uh, of material. So, even though 80 percent sounds like a lot, the actual number of quotes you need to get may not be that many. Uh, as we did get into the other pieces uh, of travel um, make sure that you're using GSA information for your per diem and lodging you know hopefully you know exactly where you're going that's usually called out in the RFP uh, so you've got some uh, defined place uh, of performance that you need to travel so it's easy to, again to get that GSA information obviously for things like airfare rental car fuel parking and tools you'll just have to use your best estimate we all know that uh, airfare and uh, rental fees. You know fluctuate for various reasons uh so the best thing you can do there is just get an estimate uh, and document it odc so those other direct costs are usually minimal might be some little things if maybe the travel uh, or the nature of work that you're doing requires uh, installation uh, of your product um you know it might be some small hand tools or other uh, minor uh, expenses like that and then the other potential big thing for a cost and price proposal is subcontractors you know, there's a, again can be a lot of information. If you are giving out a, a fair portion of the work to somebody else, uh, then they're going to be submitting a, a detailed cost proposal to you uh, that you need to evaluate and include those details in your proposal uh, to your end customer. This sounds like a lot of
0: information here, and one of the things that's kind of running through my mind is what should the the format of this be, and like how sh- how should you compile this to give to the government? Is there some recommendations? On that, or or even guidelines.
1: Yeah, it's an excellent question, uh, and Michael, you're right. It is a lot of information. Uh, obviously, the larger the dollar value of the contract, the more information um, that's here. Uh, a lot of times, when we're talking about large dollar value contracts, we're also talking about contracts that have a significant period of performance, something greater than 12 or 18 months. Um, you know, you may be uh, quoting, or I should say, you may be proposing, um, you know, a contract that has a base year and, uh, and potential option years of two, three, four or five option years. Uh, so, yes, a lot of information. And then, you know, how do you organize that? Uh, again, I always drive people back to the RFP. Make sure that you're reading the RFP because oftentimes uh, there are very specific requirements on the format, uh, including uh, the file types and sizes. Uh, so you want to keep that kind of information uh, in mind. Typically, um, the contractor can submit stuff in their own form. Format, as long as they provide the required information. So it's not so much that there is a specific form, though, again, be very careful because we have seen from some agencies or offices uh, that they do want a specific form filled out. And maybe in addition to that, you need to submit you know supporting documents. But again, typically the, the contractor can submit their own form as long as they provide the information. One of the key things uh, to look for is the information uh, in FAR 15.408. Uh, in table 15-2, that provides a cost element breakdown. Um, And what you want to look for there is making sure that you're providing quantity and dollars. Quantity could be quantity in terms of materials, the number of trips. Quantity could be the number of hours when we're talking about labor categories. Again, you want quantity and dollars by labor category, by CLIN, by year. So this really turns into a matrix. Um, If you could imagine in front of you If you were to try to start to draw out a matrix down the left-hand column, you would list things like labor, the individual labor categories, materials, the individual materials, same thing for travel, ODC, subcontractors. And then in your columns going across the worksheet, you would have things, uh, again, for quantity, dollars, a subtotal. You would have that group by years. So again, if you were proposing, let's say right now, uh, you were proposing something with a base year and four option years. And let's just say that that was going to be Uh, a base year beginning uh, January 1st of 2021, you know, then you would have uh, five big groupings going across for 2021 through 2026. You'd be able to subtotal, uh, for example, underneath of labor materials, each of those main cost elements, you'd be able to subtotal by year, be able to do total totals is what I like to call them, that far right total, uh, most right column. And then we have what I call my total total total, which is that bottom right-hand corner. Again, if you can kind of envision this spreadsheet in front of you, that total, total, total on the bottom right-hand corner is your final cost down there for everything that you're proposing.
0: When I'm thinking about the spreadsheet and everything that's going in it, I know there's one area that... I know a lot of people struggle with and that is the profit section. And you know we it's something we have to disclose. So how should a contractor address this?
1: You know, that's always an interesting question. It's very sensitive I think on both sides of the table for the contractor uh, and for, you know, their customer whether their customer is the prime or directly with the government. We're all in business to make money, right? At the end of the day, we're all in business to make money. And how do we make money? Right? We propose profit and fee on top of the cost that it you know that are incurred for us to deliver our product or service. You know, contractors, you know, are very sensitive. They don't want somebody to necessarily know how much money they're making. However, in the world of a cost contract, because you are submitting that cost information, then you also have to submit the profit information related to that. I like to insert here that you should only be sharing profit information in this kind of environment where it really is a cost type contract where there is cost analysis Being performed. If you are submitting a proposal uh, for a fixed price contract, so you're submitting only price information in your proposal, and the contract, and whether it's the contracting officer or the prime, is going to be performing price analysis in that situation, you should never disclose profit as a separate item because that is a separate element. And when when that uh, other party is performing price analysis, they're looking at the top level. In comparison, what we're talking about here is cost analysis for a cost type contract. So you do need to submit that information. So then the question becomes, well, how much do I propose? And so what I tell people is that there are one, there are only three limitations in the far um, for profit and fee. So this goes across the board uh, as we talk about contract types. Uh, the first is that R&D work on a CPFF or a cost plus fixed fee contract shall not exceed 15% of the contract's estimated cost excluding fee. One of the things I also like to remind people here when we talk about cost plus fixed fee, that fixed fee is key. And keep in mind that as you approach the cost ceiling on a fixed fee contract, you may hit that point where you say, we only have 25% of the funding left, but we've got 35% of the work to do. So we need a little more money. You ask the government uh, or your prime for additional money. They may give you additional cost money, but they are not required to give you additional fee or profit money. Again, it was a cost plus fixed fee contract. Uh, one of the other limitations, and this one is a little more tricky in the way it's worded, so bear with me on this. Uh, it's for architect engineer services for public works or utilities. Um, and it states that the contract price for the AE portion, the contract price, not the profit, but the contract price for the AE portion cannot exceed 6% of the estimated cost of construction. So let me give you a quick analogy. Let's say you're an AE firm who designs bridges, Right, uh, the government is coming to you to design that as a as an architect-engineer firm. Uh, your total contract cannot exceed six percent of the cost of the estimated cost to build that bridge. Uh, the third limitation that you'll find in the FAR, and I should have said that you'll find all of this in FAR 15.404-4. The third limitation that you'll find in there is for all other cost-plus-fixed fee contracts, uh, and that fee shall not exceed ten percent of the contract's estimated cost. So um, there's a couple of uh, myth busters I'd like to put in here. You'll often hear, I certainly still hear it and it disturbs me. We hear contractors say, well, somebody told me I can only propose 6% or 8%. Or, you know, sometimes specifically, there'll be some primes who put out their RFPs to their subcontract base and say, from the beginning, we're only going to give 6%. And and that's just not appropriate. It's not the right thing to do. Um, there's no regulatory requirement behind that. Um, unfortunately, it happens. Um, and my best advice uh, for contractors is, is to push back. Uh, I, again, you're right, Michael. It's always a it's always a tough conversation to have.
0: Yeah, I, I think anytime you're talking profit, it it really makes people nervous. <laughs> you know, they, they don't like to talk about the profits. People don't like to talk about numbers in general, but profit is one that definitely scares people. And I'm glad you brought up the myth busters, because I think as a word of caution to anybody who is in this industry, anytime you hear, I heard followed by whatever, you need to go check it out.
1: Amen to that. Yeah, you're exactly right.
0: <laughs> yeah. I. Mean, it, it, but isn't that like, I can't tell you how many times somebody will call me up and say, I heard that and they say something. And I, and I usually say, I've been in this business for 20 something years. I have never heard that. Or I understand what you're trying to do and that's not right. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know I, I had somebody the other day, it, it was a total innocent question. They they didn't know where this was coming from. And it was about, uh, hey, you know, I was thinking about putting my wife in charge of, you know, forming a new company, putting my wife in charge of it so that we could get the woman owned status. And I said, well, is she going to run it? He's like, oh, well, no. Yeah, <laughs> well, let's, well, let's have that conversation. And I started going down the rabbit hole with him. And he's like, I didn't, re- I thought, I just thought this is what you did. I like, I heard yeah. you could do that. And he's like, she actually has three other businesses. And he's like, well, I thought we'd start this fourth one because he has a couple that are separate from her as well. So these are serial entrepreneurs. This isn't like people who are completely uneducated on business. And they were just saying, I heard from a friend that you could do this with the government. I'm like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. And here's why, you know, but it, it, I mean, that's a simple example. You know, can you imagine some of the ones that come out in this to me? I think you have one of the toughest jobs in the industry because anytime people see anything numbers related, a lot of people, you know, their eyes just kind of gloss over and start drooling <laughs> type thing. Cause it, you know, you see the numbers and the spreadsheets and all this stuff and it really can you know, make you crazy a little bit. And the the other thing about it to me is there's so little room for error. And and that's why I talked up front about having somebody who is an expert in this industry doing this, because you need somebody who understands the industry, understands pricing, understands, you know, all the stuff you're throwing out there that I'm sure a lot of people are like, I'm going to have to go write this down later. if <laughs> you know, They're in their car because there's so many little things, but you know, that's why we have experts. So, and
1: um, and in, and I want to jump on something that you said there. As we talk about fee and profit, and kind of little room for error is what triggered it for me. If you are proposing or otherwise negotiating ten percent or less um, for fee, I'm not saying that that's an inappropriate uh, answer because again, there may be stipulations around that. But but even at ten percent, you have to keep in mind, and this is one of the things that I always when I educate people on both sides of the table whether it's contracting officers or contractors, there are things that come out of profit or fee that uh, people who don't understand accounting forget about. You know, if you just say, hey, well, you know, I negotiated 10%, if you're the contracting officer or the prime and you say, well, I negotiated 10% fee to the sub, they should be happy they're making 10%. Well, they're not really making 10% because there are things like income taxes, unallowable costs, cost overruns, other things that actually come out of the 10%. So they're not really making 10%. And then the other thing is that. That 10% doesn't even whatever is left. So let's say there's eight or eight and a half percent. That doesn't mean at the end of every month they get to write themselves a check for eight or eight and a half percent. Right. They've got to keep the cash in the business so that the business is solvent, right? They've got a, a outstanding accounts receivable that they need to fund. They have payroll, credit cards, other things that they need to pay as they continue on. And, you know, even with a small business, while you should be getting paid in a timely manner, it's not uncommon. And again, you know, there are other factors that come into play, such as the types of contracts, um, or you know, you may negotiate different payment terms. We oftentimes see that even small businesses may be net thirty, net sixty. On you know, getting cash in hand. So, just because you negotiated some fee again at the end of the day doesn't mean the owner is able to take it out. That cash still remains in the business. Yeah.
0: You know, the really, really good points there. You know, I think cash management at, at a high level is such an art form for a lot of these small business owners, especially when you're juggling multiple projects. You've got staff, you've got, uh, like you said, the ac- accounts receivable could be 30, 60, 90 days out. Who knows? Uh, so, it really is an art form to manage your- your cash and to do it really well. So one of the things as you were kind of going through and and talking about the spreadsheet, something that kind of popped in my mind here is I always see contract, I've seen mistakes here that really crush a contract in that second, third, fourth year. If it's a multiple year contract, talk to me a little bit about the pricing to kind of take that into account. So we're, you know, we're doing a a multi-year deal here. You know, how do you handle the costs rising over a couple of years, not only for like products or whatever but you know the labor and all those kind of things because you know people get raises costs go up that sort of thing and uh, again i know people probably have an in general concept of this but talk to me about how you do that in this part of the the proposal process
1: yeah so really there is a couple of key things here uh the first is a budget um and what we find is that many probably most (laughs) uh small businesses don't prepare a budget which is unfortunate Um, because if you don't budget for success, then you may not achieve success uh, in simplest form. But if you're not looking at what your known costs are, what your expected costs are, then how do you know how well you're doing? How do you know how to manage that cash and when to hold on to it? When we talk about budgets, we actually like to talk about budgets from two perspectives, uh, one being top down and the other being bottom up. And in reality, the best budget is using both of those approaches. Uh, So you have to, look at uh, from the top down is, you know, what is your backlog? what is the known work that's already on your plate and what is it going to cost you to deliver that work? Again, whether it's products or services doesn't matter, but what is it going to cost you to deliver that work? And then from the bottom up, it's looking at, okay, what are the known expenses that I have, right? So you've got rent, you've got employee, I mean, you've got salary employees, you've got fringe expenses and other things. And then you have to marry those two things together. And then you have to start tacking on, well, what if I win this other contract or what other proposals are out there? And what is our, you know, what's our typical Win ratio on those. When do we think that they're actually going to be awarded? And you got to factor in all of that stuff. So part of the answer back to your question is when you're looking at future years, you've got to build a budget in general, and hopefully you're building, you know, a two, three, four-year budget. Now, yeah, if 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 I had a, a crystal ball and could tell you what's going to happen in four years, Michael, I wouldn't be on this this call with you today because or on this podcast with you today because I'd be making millions of dollars from somewhere in a very warm location telling people the answers to the questions they need to have but what we can do is apply the best information that we have at our hands right so we can look at history um, and if you've been in business for a while, and you go back and, you, for example, you track your indirect rates, you know what's going on. Even as you build a budget in the future, you got a sense of, hey, our rates are on target with where they have been, or they're on target with where we're going. Again, knowing your industry, uh, knowing you know some sense of when contracts uh, you expect them to be awarded, all of those things will affect um, your basic rates that you put together. Uh, you know, one of the comments that you made is, um, you know, what do you do about salary increases, right? So we. Should know what that kind of stuff is. Uh, When we talk about healthcare expenses, you know, again, if you've been in business for a while, you have a general sense of what's happening with your fringe expenses over time. The other factor, and I said there were two factors, the first being budgets as we look at future years. The other factor is the unknown of escalation, right? So we don't always know what's going to happen in the economy. Um, I'm pretty sure that on January 1st of this year, uh, probably even on February 1st and maybe on March 1st, none of us really had a sense of what COVID-19 was going to do and the impact it was going to have on our economy and on our daily lives. So because of things like that, again, none of us can really know what's going to happen two, three, four years in the future. But what we can do is look at historical information and we can see what has happened with escalation over time. And by escalation, I'm saying, you know, we're talking about the overall rise or fall in the cost of doing business. Our recommendation when we talk about escalation um, is one that you break apart any labor and materials, uh, primarily because those markets can be very different, especially if you're working in different types of materials. Uh, The industry that you're in, um, the geographic location, there are a lot of factors that come into play uh, when we talk about labor. So you want to make sure that you factor that into your labor escalation. When we're talking about materials, uh, again, the industry, the raw materials that go into the products that you buy um, can have a significant uh, impact on the escalation rate so if you are one of those contractors that you heard as we were talking about Michael if you heard oh, just apply 3% or just apply you know 5% across the board one if you if you put a a flat round number out there and you use the same number in all future years, that's a big flag uh, to auditors. So they're going to see that. Um, It's an unsubstantiated number by just putting some round number out there. And in fact, again, if you don't break down that difference between labor and material, you might actually be leaving money on the table, even if you negotiate escalation, because again, when you take a single factor and apply it across both of those, again, primarily looking at labor and material, one of those may have a significant uh, increase or decrease that could otherwise affect a blended approach.
0: Yeah. You know, as I'm listening to you go through all this, that was one of the things that popped in my head was this is one of those areas and you said it where done poorly or using the, I heard I should do the flat 3% where you leave money on the table when you make other mistakes, like you said, the the red flags. And and I think that's where people really need to pay attention to this part of the podcast, because those are the things that lose a deal, you know, creating red flags Loses a deal, leaving money on the table may not lose a deal, but it may bankrupt you, or at least make things really, really tight in a future year. It could bankrupt you if you did it really poorly. Again, I've seen things where people don't take into consideration that third, fourth, fifth year, and they start going into that year and they're like, "I can't pay this guy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, in order to stay on this contract, I'm gonna have to swap this person out, and it's gonna really make the client mad." But I didn't take enough into consideration here, and now they can go get a job and get a 20% bump in pay. You and, know?
1: you know, no, it's a it, one of the common things that we hear from existing or potential clients uh, that we talk to is they'll say, Hey, w- we're doing work on a contract. You know, we're billing, we're getting paid, but at the end of the month, there's just not much money left over. You know, we, we don't, we don't quite understand what's happening. And, and when we dig into it, we usually find um, a couple of problems. One of the primary ones is usually with their indirect rates. The, the indirect rates are calculated incorrectly. Um, and so, right, if you, if you do an improper calculation from a cost perspective, then the price you proposed is going to be incorrect. And as I tell people in my nearly 17 years of doing this, I haven't found anybody who's accidentally overcharged to the government. <laughs> it, it's, it's a situation where they've undercharged and left money on the table and cost themselves a lot of money. You know, In fact, we had a, a client a couple of years ago who called with that same thing, actually went on site, spent a, a day and a half there, was talking to them. And just in talking, not even open up, not even looking at any of the numbers or worksheets, but in talking to them, we uncovered that they were not billing any of their overtime. Now they were paying the overtime to be clear, right? So uh, the employees were getting paid. It was on the payroll records. It was in the general ledger. However, there was a huge disconnect between the accounting department And in their case, the program department who was actually preparing uh, their bids and proposals um, and how they were uh, proposing their costs out. And this was a situation where the company was on average experiencing about a 15 to 20 percent overtime year over year. It was the nature of their combination nature of the geography and the industry that they're in. So there was 15 to 20% of their labor costs, really, that they were never accounting for uh, in their price. You know, this is a
0: uh, a good time for me to jump on my soapbox here. Being in business is not about revenue. It's just not. It's about profit at the end of the day. You know, I, I see so many times where companies are so focused on that top number. We got to get to 5 million, 10 million, whatever. But what if you're a 5 or 10 million dollar company and you're still making the same amount of profit? Y- you're, you're not moving forward. You're, you're really neutral. You just have a lot more revenue and a lot more to juggle. And so I, I think it's so important that you pointed that out about the clients that come to you that at the end of the month, they just don't have a lot of money left over. Because that's another one of those i heards that that people tell me all the time is, you know, I thought about getting into government contracting, but I heard there's not a lot of money in it. There's not a lot of profit. And I'm like, well, when you do it wrong, there's not. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the bottom line. When you do it wrong, there's not a lot of profit. And so being able to, you know as they say, sharpen the pencil here and really understand what's going on in those spreadsheets is a big, big deal. So as we're wrapping up here, why don't you kind of you know send us out with telling people, how can a contractor ensure that they've developed a, a complete and adequate cost and price proposal? Because I think at the end of the day, there's a lot of opportunity for mistakes, but there's also a lot of opportunity for hidden gems in this thing. So if you could wrap us up with that.
1: Yes. Yeah, So I guess I would have a a couple of items. Uh, Again, first and foremost, read the RFP. Um, We just never can stress that enough. Provide the viewer, the reader on the other end, the information that they want and need. Uh, Kind of back to your comment earlier that deals can be broken simply because you didn't Provide the information. At the very least, you end up dragging out negotiations, uh, which ultimately, you know, delays contract award and causes problems on both sides of the table. But but read the requirements of what's in there. Make sure that you go through it with a fine-tooth comb. Always have somebody from the outside look at it and run the calculations again when we talk about today here from the cost and price perspective. When you put together all the numbers in the worksheets, have somebody who didn't prepare it, uh, go through it, have them cross-check and validate some stuff. And, And probably the last thing is kind of what we opened up with, Michael, and I say the same thing. You have to hire somebody who knows government contracts uh, again, whether it's an accountant or whether it's an attorney, and in fact, you'll probably keep your existing accountant and attorney, but you need somebody in your court who knows government contracts, who knows the ins and outs of this, and one can keep you legal um, and can keep you profitable as well. Yeah,
0: you know, great
1: advice there. And,
0: and I'm going to close with this. And just because you bring on a specialist, you know, that's going to do this stuff, doesn't mean you get rid of that accountant. You you kind of said that, but it also doesn't mean you take the basic accounting in your taxes and put on the shoulders of this person. You know, use use your team for what they should be used. You know, it's like using your team wisely is really, really important. And we don't need, you know, Robert doing your taxes. We need Robert in the spreadsheets or his team in the spreadsheets of this stuff, helping with things that are a specialist area. And so, you know, it's okay to have a bigger team. You don't need to consolidate folks. In fact, you know, you should look at it from the perspective of everybody plays their own position on the field and it's good to have multiple players on the field and getting those that different feedback so really great stuff today i really appreciate it robert uh just fantastic stuff as always uh as usual all of robert's information will be on our website so links and emails phone numbers all that kind of stuff so if you're driving in your car don't worry about writing that stuff down it'll be on there for you you can go get that so thanks again robert thank you thanks for listening to game changers for government contractors For a full list of episodes and other resources, be sure and check us out on the web at www.rsmfederal.com slash gamechangers.